If you turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3, it's good to see everyone. Welcome by live stream this morning as well. We are in the third chapter of 2 Peter. We've moved to another chapter. Um, and don't take this wrong, but I am so glad to be out of chapter 2. I uh, found that to be a very scorching chapter. Uh, chapter that dealt with the character and the teachings of false teachers and just took a while to get through all that but uh, we survived and as one person said uh, we've shined a light on the underbelly of false doctrine and false teachers by going through that chapter so if um, you weren't here for all of that or you it was just broken up into several sermons go back and just read it in one setting sometime and you just get the full picture and uh and that'll give you an idea of what Peter is saying, get the full effect of what he is saying in chapter 2. We come to chapter 3 today, and we are on our final stretch of this short epistle. Uh, and we still have false teachers in mind. That's the theme of the whole book. But he moves to a specific doctrine that they are attacking this morning. And that's what we're going to begin looking at in the weeks to come. You saw it in... Uh, verses that were read previously it's the second coming or the return of christ and specifically it's the judgment that's associated with that coming it's not just that he's coming again but he's coming in judgment that is the part that they uh, refute and uh, the part that they are questioning Uh, so many people when it comes to the second coming want to spiritualize it away They want to say it's just something that happens in our hearts, and it's not some literal event that's going to take place one day. Uh, But many people have very different motivations for saying that and doing that, but uh, for these false teachers, we're going to talk about that as we go through these passages. Notice the question that's asked in verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 3, where is the promise of his coming? That's the question. And it's sort of said in a sneering way because they are mocking as they say this, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so the second coming of Christ, and I'll just say this is a dominant theme of the Bible. The second coming of Christ is a dominant theme. And uh, let me give you some Bible facts about it. Um, There are 330 prophecies about Jesus coming in the Old Testament. 330 prophecies about Christ. 109 of those prophecies was fulfilled at the first coming. 224 prophecies are still to be fulfilled at the second coming. The point I'm making is, when you read the Old Testament, the majority of the promises about the Messiah refer to the second coming. 224 to 109 for the first coming. So it's a very, very prominent theme in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus referred to his return 21 times. The apostles as well spoke of it often. About one out of every 25 verses refers to the second coming. And next to the subject of faith, it's the major theme of the New Testament as well. The second coming of Christ. Only two books maybe three, but two books, Philemon and 3 John, do not mention anything about it. Galatians alludes to it a little bit. 2 John may uh, uh, also just allude to it and not really not state it it specifically, but it's talked about in 
all the other books of the New Testament. And so you would think, why would anybody be confused about it? Why would anybody have any questions about it? Why would, especially people that call themselves Christians, because these false teachers have crept into the church. Why would they be confused about something that is so obviously in the Bible? But chapter 3 of 2 Peter tells us that that's exactly what is happening. And it's confusing. It's confusing to the believers who are listening to these teachers. It's confusing to the believers to hear messages coming from false teachers that say uh, he's not coming back or he's already come back or he has come back in a spiritual form of some kind. Or he's not coming, the supernatural just doesn't happen. And we'll see that as we go through this. Let me just remind you where this all fits into the book of 2 Peter. Go back to chapter 1 just for a moment. Just remind you of the, the main points of, the, of chapter 1, just to, to set the stage for what we're coming to here in chapter 3. In chapter 1, in the first two verses, the first few verses, we talked about saving faith. And this is important to get the foundations down because when the false teachers come, you've got to be able to know that you're grounded. And what Peter does is he starts out with saving faith. That He says saving faith is something that we receive. It's not something that we come up with ourselves. It's an allotment is actually the word there. We received a faith, a free gift. And only reason you're a Christian is because God opened your heart and granted to you repentance and faith. We start out this letter that way, and that's so important, so very important. Verse 3 says he's given us divine power that has been granted to, to us, and so it's important to know that you have that faith, that you receive that faith from God, that divine power from God working in your inner man um, when you're facing false teaching. Then you get further down into chapter 1, and this is sort of the heart of the chapter. In chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 7, he talks about diligently pursuing certain Christian virtues. If you're one who has saving faith, he goes from there and says, now these are things that you should be pursuing. You see that in verses 5 through 7. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. In verse 10, he uses that word diligent again, Diligent, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things that have just been listed in 5 through 7, you will never stumble. You want assurance of your salvation, then diligently apply these things. Uh, diligence is an important part of our Christian life. Somebody asked the question how do you know diligence is not legalism? How do you know you're not falling into legalism when you're seeking to be diligent? And the answer to that question would be, don't trust in it. That would be the answer. Don't trust in your diligence. Be diligent. Sweat in your Christian walk. But don't trust in your sweat. Don't trust in your diligence. 
Your faith is in Christ. We are to work out our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. That's been granted to to us by Christ. Faith has been given to us. And now we're to be diligent. We're to work it out, to live it out. And I avoid legalism by not trusting in my diligence. I'm diligent, but I don't trust in it. My faith is in Christ. I don't put my faith in my performance in the Christian life. I put my faith always in Christ. Working out your salvation, for it is Christ, Philippians 2 says, who is at work in us. That's an important distinction to make. Sometimes we get all caught up in, I had my quiet time, I, I did this, I did that, I, did, I went to church, I gave money, I did, and we trust in those things. We're to do those things, but we don't trust in those things. I trust never moves away from Christ, or it does become legalism. There's no joy in that. This is a joyful applying diligence. This is a joyful making, being more diligent as it produces the qualities in me that bring glory and honor to Christ. Qualities that give me assurance of my salvation, make me certain of my calling when I see those things being produced in me. And so, Peter says, be diligent in chapter 1. Important. It's important. You want to, you're going to face false teachers. They're going to come on the scene. You need to know what you know. You need to be prepared for that. And then he says later in chapter 1 to tie it all to Scripture. See that in verse 19 through 21. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit from God. God breathed it. Listen, there is no applying of diligence that's not connected to the Scripture. And we must be holding the Scripture in priority, high priority. We must look to the Scripture as the wisdom of God and the truth of God that gives us and equips us what we need in the Christian life. I'm going to pursue, I'm going to pursue with all diligence a holy life growing in that, but I never do it outside of Scripture. Dual authorship is mentioned there. Men moved by the Holy Spirit, human authors who were inspired by God to write the very words of God. Then chapter 2, we know what chapter 2 is about, but they opened with the false teachers in chapter 2, verse 1, as opposed to these holy men of God at the end of chapter 1. Verse 1 then introduces us, chapter 2, verse 1, introduces us to these false teachers who are not men of God. And then we go through and list all the characteristics of those guys and their false teaching. It ends with what we saw last week, their dogs and their swine. And dog returns, excuse me, goes back to his vomit, returns to his vomit. And the, the, the pig or the swine goes back to the mud because their character has never changed. 
No matter what a dog looks like on the outside or a pig looks like on the outside, inside, their nature has never changed. And he's speaking of the character of these false teachers. They always go back to that. At some point, it's revealed and becomes evident because they can only hide it so long that these were not really of us. They were not true true believers. And so Peter is writing, and then we come to chapter 3, and we're going to look at the doctrinal error that they are teaching. Um, And basically what they want you to know and believe is that there's no accountability. That's what they want. There's no accountability. There's no consequences to your actions ever. Humanity can go on just like it wants, and there will never be any consequences before God. And Peter is making it very clear in this two things. One, you can be certain that he is coming back. That's what he wants to equip his readers with. You can be certain that he is coming back and he will bring judgment for the ungodly when he comes. It's like Satan said in the garden when he was tempting Adam and Eve. It was, he said this, he says, you will not die. You will not die. Has God said, you will not die? Same thing. Questioning judgment. Would judgment ever really come? Look in verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord, verse 10 says, will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a, up, with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this whole chapter is built around the certainty that he's coming back and he's bringing judgment with him. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that false teachers are denying this. They say it's illogical to believe that. Um, Cleverly devised tales is what they would call it. We're making something up. Peter said, no, that's not true. It is true. He is coming back. Doug gave the elders a book to read entitled, Right Thinking for a Culture in Chaos. Right Thinking for a Culture in Chaos. And there's different chapters on different issues But John MacArthur has a chapter in there entitled, Not Global Warming, but Global Warning. Big difference. Um, And what he says in that, uh, basically, is that global warming is not our greatest problem. He doesn't use this word, but this is my word. Our greatest problem and concern should be global incineration. That's what these verses in Peter tell us. And that's what hangs over us. And that will come one day as God's judgment. 
This world is not going to end by how the climatologists define global warming, but it will end by God's judgment. He's not concerned with saving the planet. Not that we should abuse the planet, not that we should not be concerned about the environment and things like that, but we don't worship it. We don't make it all there is. We don't hold on to it as if, if this is it, because this is not it. This is not it. We don't cling to this because our hope is not in this world. If your hope is in this world, I get it. You've got to make this work. But our hope is not. Our hope is in a new heavens and a new earth. And it's not about saving the planet. This planet is disposable to God. It's unbiblical to think that we've got to hold on to this, folks. That's not true. That's wrong. It's good to take care of our planet. Yes, best we can. But we can never do as much damage as God's going to do to it one day. And we need to keep that biblical, eternal, setting your mind on things above perspective. Because this is not... This is not all there is. So this, this chapter deals with the certainty of his return. And he takes on two questions. One is, where is the promise of his coming? I'll talk about the other one. The other question is, uh, you see that in verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? Um, their argument's going to be, God does not break into human history he doesn't change the natural order of things. He's never done that since the creation of the world. That's what they will say in this chapter. The second question is going to be, why should I be concerned about it? It's a future event. It's not relevant for me. And how does this affect how I live? And he will address that later in the chapter as well. And so we're going to look here this morning, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Peter 3. And just basically, how can I be certain? Where is the promise of his coming? And he says this to encourage them. Remember the word of God. Verse 1, this is now, beloved, uses that word, by the way, several times. He really loves his readers. The second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He lets them know why he is writing them. In fact, this is his purpose for writing both 1 Peter and 2 Peter. You see that, uh, the second letter. This is the second letter I'm writing to you, in which tells you uh, in both letters, second letter and first letter, I am stirring up, I'm awakening your mind, your sincere mind, by the way, not the kind of double-mindedness of the false teachers back in chapter 2, but your sincere mind, because you have a true, you're not hypocritical in your thinking. He's saying, I'm reminding you of some things, because spiritual amnesia is real, right? Spiritual amnesia is a real disease. We do forget, and I don't care how long you've been a believer, you need to be reminded of things. Paul says in Philippians 3.1, I'm writing the same things again. There's no trouble to me to write, that, write the same things to you again because it's a safeguard for you. I'm writing these things to you as a safeguard to you. Uh, Peter is reminding them again of things that he has said to them before. 
but he makes no apology for it as we saw back in chapter one. Calvin said this, the laziness of the flesh smothers doctrine once we hear it. Smothers doctrine once we hear it. You may remember this sermon when you walk out the door today for a little while. You may remember it even tonight. You may remember it possibly tomorrow and Tuesday, but it's gonna start going fast. Um, it'll just start, you'll remember we're in Peter, I guarantee you that, but you, you will, you just have to be, we have to be reminded, we're all like that. We have to be reminded, it's a good thing to take notes and go back and read, oh yeah, that's what was said, oh yeah, that's what was talked about. We have to remember the Lord's table, do this in remembrance of me. We have to be reminded of why he came and why he died. We need the constant reminding as a safeguard, as Paul says. Um, and, and you may not realize this, but every Sunday, I am basically saying the same thing to you just in different ways. I am always telling you to read your Bible, pray, submit to God, obey your Bible, and tell others about Jesus. I say the same thing every Sunday. And I just say it different ways because we all need to be reminded of those things. That's basically what we're saying. Read your Bible, pray, submit to God, obey your Bible, tell others about Jesus. Just think of different ways to say it, right? <laughs> different texts that we go to to do that. But we need the reminder constantly that you should remember, verse 2 says, um, these basic truths about the second coming is where he's going. You should, you should remember the words, notice, spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter says, remember the words from the Old Testament. See that? Beforehand by the holy prophets. That's Old Testament. And the apostles' teaching, notice, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the, your apostles. That's the New Testament. So remember what the Bible says. Remember what the scriptures say. Now, no doubt, the scriptures, the New Testament, was still being written. So what you have, Paul's writings, for example, what you have of the apostles' writing is, is the context here. For us, we have the complete canon. But for those readers, it was the commandment of the Lord and our Savior spoken by your apostles as the canon of Scripture is in process. You need to have the Scriptures on your radar. That's what he is saying. There are some things you need to have on your radar as you encounter what these false teachers are talking to you about regarding the second coming. And that is why he takes them first to the Old Testament and he's referring to messianic prophecies about the second coming because there were, as I told you earlier, a lot of them, a lot of them. Let me give you some background here to the Old Testament prophets just for a moment. Old Testament prophets had a difficult time. Remember, revelation of the Bible is progressive. You get some here, some here, some here, some here, until you get the complete picture. They prophesied in the Old Testament things they did not even understand all the time. They prophesied about things they would never see in their lifetime. They gave these prophecies about the Messiah, and at times they were confused. You know why they were confused? Because they were being told the Messiah was going to be humble and gentle and meek, born in Bethlehem. 
But they were also talking about a Messiah of judgment, a Messiah of wrath, a Messiah who was going to destroy his enemies, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. They could not reconcile this Messiah, humble and gentle and meek, lion of the tribe of Judah, that was difficult to reconcile for them. They saw Messiah coming, but they saw Messiah just coming. They didn't see first and second coming in the Old Testament. And so it was very difficult for them to have the whole picture of what was going on here. When Jesus appeared, many thought, oh, he's here with his kingdom. He's here and his kingdom is going to be fulfilled. They were all thinking like those Old Testament prophets thought, only one, one coming. They did not know a first coming and a second coming. Some of the rabbis reconciled this confusion by saying, oh, there's going to be two messiahs. There's going to be two messiahs. One who is humble and gentle and meek and one who is the line of the tribe of Judah because it was that confusing to them to try and figure out how in the world the Messiah could be both. What kind of man is this going to be? What kind of person is this going to be? A Messiah, humble and compassionate and caring, all these things, you see. And also a, a, a Messiah of the time of Jacob's trouble and the tribulation. What is all that? It was just all lumped together. So it was very confusing. So when he comes, he's going to come a second time. And he's come, it's one Messiah, and he comes twice. We know that. We have the advantage of further progressive revelation of the New Testament, where Jesus comes once and he comes again. He comes once, humble Savior. He comes again, lion of the tribe of Judah in the future. Turn, hold your hand here in 2 Peter and turn over to Isaiah 13. Let me just show you two examples. I could take you to numerous examples. I'm just going to take you to two this morning real quickly and just read them for you. Um, but in Isaiah 13, here you have a second coming prophecy. This is not a first coming prophecy written hundreds of years before Christ came the first time. But in Isaiah 13, verse 6, he says this, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. Just note that term, day of the Lord. Peter uses that term several times as well. Day of the Lord. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. This does not sound like a baby born in, a Beth in Bethlehem, does it? No, it doesn't sound like a manger scene. No, the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. There, they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will 
not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it arises, and the moon will not shed its light. Listen, nothing in history has happened like that, okay? Nothing in history has happened like that yet. But one day it will. Revelation even talks about these very things happening in the future. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. This is the revelation of the Old Testament. The book of Revelation for the Old Testament. This is what Revelation is to the New Testament is the book of Zechariah. Because it gives so much, especially in 12 through 14, so much information about the future. The events of 12 through 14 have never happened before. In 12 through 14, excuse me, I'm going to take you to chapter 14 of Zechariah. And Zechariah says this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. This is verse 1. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather, notice, all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Jerusalem will be around at this, at this particular time. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and the half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, those nations that come against Israel one day, as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, verse 4 says, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Notice the Mount of Olives. Where did he depart from? He departed from the Mount of Olives, didn't he? His ascension. One day he's coming back to the very place that he departed from, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Turn over to Jude. Go all the way, back to, go all the way to the end of the New Testament to the book of Jude. A very interesting statement there in Jude. In Jude 14 and 15, this is, this is just interesting. Jude, a New Testament book, New Testament writer, says this about something that happened way back in the past. It was also about these men that Enoch, notice, seven generations from Adam. The reason I point this out, because this is an Old Testament character, Enoch, seven generations from Adam prophesied saying behold the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him so all the way back in history Jude is referring to an event all the way back in history that God to show that God was concerned that men understand that he was coming to execute judgment in those earliest days to make that statement, to, to judge men. Um, you know, you just want to create a theology that doesn't hold you accountable. That's what you do. And that's what false teachers do. Uh, a theology that there's no consequences. But the Bible, Peter says, says there are. Says there are. And we're connected to God's Word, not to human understanding or to human rationalizations or human wisdom, but to God's Word. Folks, this is how it's going to go, according to the Old Testament. 
They want to dismiss it from their minds. This is a tactic being used everywhere for people who are caught up in sinful lifestyles. They just deny truth. They just say things are not true, therefore they're not, I don't have to be accountable to them. The first coming is fine, they like that, but they don't like this, because the first coming is not a threat to them, but the second coming is. Then he says in the, the second part, go back to Second Peter, you'll notice in Second Peter that verse also says, in verse 2 also says that, the command of, commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He turned to the New Testament. And let me just give you, I'll just read a couple of these just for you. You don't have to turn to all these. You can make references to these if you want to. When did Jesus give us a commandment about this? He did it at several places, but 7.15, he said, Beware of the false prophets of Matthew 7.15, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. In Matthew 24, he says, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. But turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, but the Spirit explicitly says in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's how he calls them, doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons are any doctrine that leads you away from the truth. That's what the demons want to do. That's what Satan wants to do. He doesn't want you to believe that God would do anything like this, not a loving God not a, a compassionate God. Verse 2 says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, that's what he calls these false teachers coming in the last days, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. They have no conscience. Second, Second Timothy calls them, they have a form of godliness. They have no power because they're just religious people. They're religious people that say these things. Beware of those people that come along in their, their, their clerical garb or whatever it is and seminary professors or religious leaders who come along and say things that are contrary to the word of God just to tickle men's ears because nobody likes to talk about judgment. Nobody wants to talk about consequences. Nobody wants to talk about a God who would hold them accountable for anything. He says it's a God that loves everybody and he loves you just the way you are. And peace when there is no peace. Those kinds of things. Go back to 2 Peter. Verse 3. We'll look at now. 2 Peter verse 3 verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. Last days is any period, or is the period of time we're living in right now. Basically, it's the church age. Basically, it began at the end of the Old Testament, and now we're in the last days. Days after the first coming of Christ. You would say these are the last days. 
Now there's greater intensity as these last days move forward. We see that in Scripture. But last days is, we've been in the last days for a long time. It's the period of time before he returns. These mockers, he calls them, they deride, they sneer the truth with their mocking. And that just ought to assure your heart that Christ said, I tell you in advance, these people are going to come. Uh, the very fact that they do this, uh, and the scripture told us they would do this, um, verifies the fact that it's going to happen. Their, the very fact that they would mock the way they mock is an indication of the truthfulness that he's going to come back because we were told that they were going to do this by Jesus and by the apostles. Their very denying it tells us it's true. One of the greatest proofs that it's going to happen again. He calls them mockers. He calls them scoffers. They have a deep contempt for Christianity. Uh, they ridicule. They make fun of it. They try to steal your hope. Um, they're the college professor, like, like I had one time, who was a former Methodist pastor. And he evidently had a very bitter experience in the ministry. And he just let us all know why he hated Christianity so much. It was just... I sat there, I was a young Christian, I sat there in shock. Listen, I never heard somebody who called himself a minister because um, he said he was a minister, but he went into education and was now teaching this, I don't remember what the class was, but the point is, it immediately one began to mock and ridicule Christianity and especially people that would believe in Christianity. And that was a long time ago. I'm sure it's much worse now. But that's what they do. They make fun of Christianity beliefs. And you know that. You see on the TV and uh, news, and you see that everybody, Christians are canceled, if that's the word, from the dialogue of our culture. You see that over and over again. Doesn't, listen, that stuff does not scare me. It saddens me. But I know God's bigger than that, and God's warned me about that. That just goes with the territory of trusting Christ and walking with Christ. But these people don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in anything that God could do, the things that the Bible says God did and will do. And what's interesting is what motivates them. You see that at the end of verse 3. They follow after their own lust. You would think that there would be an academic argument that they would be willing to engage in. You would think they would want to reason with some apologetics here, at least. You would think that they would want to um, give you some kind of valid, concrete reasons why Christianity is not true. You would think that. You would think there would be honest discussion about these things. And there have been attempts throughout, the, throughout history to do that. Uh, and... But that's not, what, that's not what motivates them. It's not that they really want to know. It's that they want to justify a lifestyle. They want to justify their own, whether it's sexual lust or whether it's just greed or other strong desires that they personally have, that they do not want there to be a God, that they do not want there to be 
Christianity a judgment or any accountability. They want to be able to live their lives the way they want to live them. That's his point there. It's not some uh, educated argument that they want to engage in. It's their own desires that they say these things. And therefore, they deny, in this case, the return of Christ so they can live up to the, so they don't have to live up to the moral standards of the Bible. Adolf Huxley, he was an outspoken atheist on Christianity. He wrote a book called Ends and Means. And I got this quote from someone else. I have not read the book, but this is a quote from that book. In the book, he admitted that his attacks on Christianity stemmed from his desire to escape the feelings of guilt. He said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. You hear that? I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, assumed that it did not and was able without difficulty to find satisfying reasons for the assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning for the world does not conceive exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove there is no there's not valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. I wanted there to be meaninglessness in the universe. I did not want a biblical worldview. I did not want a worldview that said God created everything and as our creator, we are accountable to him. I did not want that worldview. It was not a convenient worldview. Meaninglessness was convenient. Honest. Reject the gospel, especially thoughts about judgment, a literal hell, all of those things so you can live up to your own standards and not the moral standards of the Bible. I read a book a while back by a guy named Paul Johnson, a New York Times bestseller on, called The Intellectuals. Maybe you've read this book. In that book, he basically goes through the lives of different intellectuals throughout history. Uh, people like, uh, I don't think Huxley's in there, but you had uh, Tolstoy and Marx and Sartre and Hemingway and, and some others in this book. And basically he goes through and just talks about their lives in fact, the, the forward of the book says, this, this book is an examination of the moral and judgmental credentials of certain leading intellectuals to give advice to humanity on how to conduct its affairs. And you read these guys, you say, I'm not taking advice from those guys. Their lives were an absolute mess. I mean, you read the book and you go through it and you think, because you've rejected God, you end up in just total darkness of your thinking and you're coming up with conclusions that you can't even live up to. You want to impose on other people. And in the meantime, your life is a moral mess. Uh, you, you read the book. It's amazing just how each one of them just kind of, their depravity just went for deeper and deeper and deeper. Great ideas over here. In demand to speak in the universities. In demand to have their, their works written up. Over here, their lives are falling apart. They could not tame their passions. And they were into all kinds of things. And they definitely didn't want to be held accountable for any of that. It's called The Intellectuals by Paul Johnson. Interesting book. John 3 says, Men love the darkness rather than light 
because their deeds are evil. If your lifestyle is contrary to God's word, you have two choices. Either you must change your lifestyle or you must, or, and what you believe about the word of God or you must change the word of God. You've got two choices. I don't, I, 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 my deeds are evil. I'm either going to love my deeds and hate the Bible or I'm going to love the Bible and hate my deeds. But you've got to change the Bible because the Bible doesn't, one thing I've learned about the Bible, the Bible does not move. You know that? You ever notice that? I try to move, it won't move. It just sits there and looks at me. It's like a mirror. It's a mirror. It just shows me me. And it doesn't move away. And my conscience will go all around it, trying to make it say something it doesn't say. Make it fit, make me feel better about me. But it doesn't move. It doesn't go anywhere. It just keeps saying the same thing. And so, I, another verse I thought was interesting about this was Psalm 14.1. Listen to this verse. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you would think the rest of that verse would say, because he has intellectually come to that conclusion after much thought and after much, much consideration and after much discussion, he has come to that conclusion. But no, you know what it says? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who has done good. It's a moral issue. It's all a moral issue. And you know this. You're seeing this played out every day in our society. It's a moral issue. People don't want to be held accountable. And so they don't want a message of judgment. A message that Christ is going to come back and judge. And that we are accountable to a holy God. Look at verse 4 quickly, back to first, 2 Peter 3. This is what they're saying with a sneer. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. How could you possibly believe? Basically, it's what they're saying. Now, they may not use the word creation. They may say all continues just as it was from the time we were blobs or something like that because this says where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep everything just goes on everything's just uniform nothing's changed and they would just say that God just sort of set the world in motion and kind of walked away they would say that they would say he doesn't interfere it's just a natural order of things they say there's no second coming, there's no judgment because God does not operate that way. And there's never been a catastrophic event in history. And you think that when you hear that, you go, what Bible are you reading? And that's what next week's verses are about. What Bible are you reading? Never been a catastrophic event? Never changed creation? of the Never changed the topography of the earth? Never changed it? Um... God has never done like, anything like this in the past, really. And we'll see that next time. But the main point today is we don't have to be threatened by those who attack our belief of what Jesus has said in his word. They have no intellectual integrity on this issue. They simply just have a moral issue. 
They want meaningless world with no consequences. They want to avoid the gospel. But it doesn't work that way. The prophets said it would happen. The prophets said it would happen. The Bible says it will happen. The New Testament says it will happen. The question is, are you ready for his return? I ask that question all the time, don't you? Where's the promise of your coming? <laughs> the mockers may say it, but I ask it all the time. I love the appearance, the thought of the appearance of his coming. And many, many times I think, God, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? Come now, come quickly, as Revelation says, come quickly. The early church used the term Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Boy, that should be our, our great hope. For believers, you know, it's just a great truth. For unbelievers, it's something to be feared. It's something to be afraid of. It's something that causes them to come up with their own theology, man-made demons of doc, uh, doctrines of demons. Father, thank you for our time today. Thank you, God, for your word. Father, I would pray as we think about what we've looked at this morning that maybe there's someone here this morning who has just bought into the world's thinking that you're not a God of judgment, that you're not a God that would hold us accountable for anything. Maybe there are just people that, in this room that think that. I pray, Father, that there would be the realization this morning that from your word that is not true. That is not the God of the Bible. That is a God that you have created for your own comfort, a God that you have made in your own image. That is a God that you have made to make you happy with you. And God, I pray they would repent of that. They'd embrace Jesus as their Savior and Lord. For he is the one that saves us from the wrath of God to come. He is the one that protects us and shields us from this fiery judgment that will one day come upon this world. We're thankful to you that we can turn to you and look to you this morning. We're thankful for the hope that we have in Christ and we lift up his name. It's not about us. It's not about our power or ability to do anything. It's what he can do and has done. But going to the cross and rising from the dead. And we praise you for that today. We love you for that in Christ's name. Amen.